I'm going to ask you again if there are any seats on your row to scoot in. We still have some people at the back standing, and I would like to have them seated if possible. So go ahead and scoot in if you have any empty seats, or hold up your hand if you're by an empty seat. We'll try to get everybody a place to sit here as we begin. Thank you for being here. I know we have a lot of guests, and we're especially glad that you're with us. This week we're studying Elijah. I actually began this morning in our services an introduction to the life of Elijah. You'll be getting three individual teachings during this summer spectacular. If you have to miss one night, I will repeat this teaching on Wednesday night. The Monday night teaching will be repeated on Thursday night. And the Tuesday night teaching will be repeated on Friday night. And then this following weekend at our Saturday and Sunday services, we'll just continue the study of the life of Elijah through the summer. So I hope that you're going to be intrigued enough by the study of the life of this great man to stay with us for a season and be blessed. Because his life is just too great to be covered in only three sessions. I want to start, and you can be opening your Bibles to 1 Kings 17, as I do, with a story I heard about this church. They were beginning services, and all of a sudden, the devil showed up, appeared right there in the front of the church, and everybody was frightened. They started screaming. They were trampling over each other, rushing to get out as quick as they could, except for this one old man who just sat calmly in his pew. He didn't move. He seemed oblivious to the fact that God's ultimate enemy was in his presence. And being intrigued, Satan walked up and said to the old man, Don't you know who I am? And the man replied, Yep, sure do. And devil said, Aren't you afraid of me? And the man said, Nope, sure ain't. Don't you realize I could kill you or cause you in Terrible agony with just a word? Yep. More than a little perturbed, Satan said, Well, why aren't you afraid of me? And the man calmly replied, Been married to your sister last 45 years. <laughs> well, if the devil had a sister, her name would be Jezebel. And if he had a son, his name would be Ahab. So if you weren't with us this morning, just a little bit of review. Elijah lived in the time of the divided kingdom. The northern kingdom, usually called Israel, had 19 kings. Every one of them were wicked. It says of every single one of them, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But of all of the kings, none was as bad as Ahab. The Bible says he was prompted to do evil by his wife, Jezebel. Notice that name, Jezebel. Her father was Ethbaal. You see, even their name spoke to their religion. Jezebel was an ardent promoter of the religion of Baal. Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility. Particularly, it was his job to send the rain. And she was promoting Baal worship in the northern kingdom in two ways. Number one, she had 850 prophets at her table that she was supporting. And number two, she was killing the prophets of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so it was a bold thing then for Ahab, as we saw this morning, to walk into King, or excuse me, Elijah, 
to walk into King Ahab and say, you want a battle of the gods? Well, let's get it on. Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives. And it's not going to rain until I say so. See, this is not a political battle. It's a theological battle. This isn't about a prophet against a king. This is about the God of Israel against the God of Jezebel. Who really does control the weather? Who really does control the universe? Elijah's name, El-E-Yah, literally means, My God is Yahweh. And so he challenges Ahab to a battle of the gods. And you think he's ready to go public with his big campaign for God. But God, who rarely announces his plans in advance, ends Elijah's public ministry after just one sentence. Look at what God has him do next. In chapter 17, verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And sometime later the brook dried up. Because there had been no rain in the land. Now what's Elijah doing out there? I'm going to suggest it wasn't a retreat center. It was boot camp. Some of you have been to boot camp. I have not. I haven't had the privilege of serving my country in the armed forces. My father was in the ROTC at Baylor University back in the 50s. And when he got out and began his uh, service, they sent him and some other officers in the Air Force to this boot camp in California where the Marines were getting ready for battle. They were crawling under barbed wire with bullets flying over their head, rolling around in mud, climbing over fences, diving into trenches. And the Air Force guys are up in the bleachers clapping for them. And then it was time to go to lunch, my dad says. And so they got the Air Force boys into an air-conditioned bus while the Marines had to double-time it over to the cafeteria. And the Marines still beat them. And we're in line first. And so the officers of the Marines began to tell them to be better host and get at the back of the line and let the Air Force boys in line first. So my dad says he walked by these Marines. He said he heard the most amazing vocabulary he's ever heard in his life. Now I find that hard to believe because the Marines only want a few good men. But that's what he says happened. But why is boot camp so brutal? Simple. You're preparing people for war. This was during the Korean conflict. And everything they were doing for those young men was to save their lives. Now God has a boot camp. 
And he sends almost every one of his heroes in the Bible to it. And it's called the wilderness. And two things quickly I want to tell you about the wilderness. Number one is that God chooses the wilderness. People don't typically go out there. They go because they are sent there by God, just like Elijah. Here's this man who wants to impact this entire nation for God, and he's being sent to a forsaken desert where he's unable to influence anybody. But again, this is not an exception for a servant of God. It tends to be the rule. Most of God's difference makers had to make it for a time in the wilderness. Moses did. David did. He spent many years on the run hiding in caves before he ever became king. Isaiah and Jeremiah spent a lot of time out in the wilderness. Paul did. He spent years in Arabia before he ever became the great apostle that we know. John the Baptist seemed to prefer the wilderness. Even Jesus spent time there. Matthew 4, 1 says, again, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. See, the wilderness is this place where it's you and it's God and it's the devil. And sometimes the devil seems closer. But here's the thing. Soldiers aren't made in seminaries. And God had to do a work in Elijah before he could do a work through him. So it's not just that God chooses the wilderness, but God uses the wilderness. Now, in Elijah's case, there were at least two reasons why God sent him there. One was for his own protection. He was sent to Camp Raven to stay alive because we'll see later that Ahab had sent people all over the world trying to find Elijah because this drought was causing Baal to look bad. So Ahab wanted to find him probably to torture him, to get him to break this curse that was making his new adopted religion look so bad in the eyes of the people. So God sent him out there to protect him from Ahab. But I think the chief reason God sends anybody to the wilderness is to test their readiness for greater challenges. Moses said to the Children of Israel, before they enter the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 8, you remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would really obey His commands. And so here's Elijah. He goes into Ahab. He makes this big challenge thinking, it is time to get it on. We're going to go public. And God says, not yet. Go out to Kareth and hide. Kareth means to cut. The idea is of something being whittled or filed down. It reminds me of the story when Oliver Cromwell became Prime Minister of England during those days when the Catholic and Protestant philosophies were raging against one another. They didn't have enough metal to mint coin to have a good, healthy economy. So Cromwell sent his men out to look for metal in England. And they came back and they said, The most metal we can find are the statues of the saints in the cathedrals. 
And Cromwell replied, good, we'll melt down the saints and put them in circulation. That's why God sends you to the wilderness. Before he can put you in circulation, he's got to melt you down. You see, God was willing to take Elijah out of the limelight. To bring out those qualities he was going to need when he got back into the limelight. Because I'll tell you something about God. He is always willing to sacrifice your comfort to increase your commitment. Let me say that again. God is always willing to sacrifice your comfort to increase your commitment. Elijah needed Kareth before he was ready for Carmel, where this story is headed. Before Elijah could tell the people that Yahweh is God, the Lord had to tell if Elijah was truly a servant. And so he goes to camp and he's got some assignments. And I want you to notice what they were. Assignment number one, to know obedience is usually not easy or complicated. You see, there is a difference between believing in God and believing God. Most people believe in God, but they don't believe God. Because the difference between believing in God and believing God is obedience. Most Americans believe in God and then go and do whatever they want. You remember Saul? This was his problem. God told him, I want you to conquer the Amalekites. And I want you to destroy everything, including all the livestock. But he didn't. He thought he'd keep the best of the livestock. And he rationalized it by saying, well, certainly we'll use some of them for sacrifices. And Samuel was sent by God to say this to Saul in 1 Samuel 15. What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Obedience is far better than sacrifice. See, obedience isn't complicated. That doesn't mean it's easy. Because it's rarely easy. But it's not complicated. It wasn't complicated to find Kareth. But it wasn't easy to stay there. It wasn't complicated to live in total isolation for two years. But it wasn't easy. And it's not easy to live on a diet of raven leftovers. One thing you've got to appreciate about what God is asking of Elijah, because this is a test, is what the Hebrews thought about ravens. You can go back and you can read for yourself in Leviticus chapter 11, or 11, <laughs> it's a Hebrew word. You English speakers would say chapter 11, or in Deuteronomy chapter 14. And there's a long list of foods that are unclean and birds that are unclean. And in both those chapters it says this, don't you eat any kind of raven. Why? Why are ravens unclean birds? Simple. They're scavengers. 
Ravens are flying garbage disposals. They will eat anything. In fact, that is where we get our word ravenous from. If you say, what does ravenous mean? I'm so ravenous. That means you're ready to eat anything. You're not picky. Well, see, when ravens feed you, you don't order off a menu. When ravens feed you, you just take whatever roadkill they want to fly and drop down for the day. But I'll tell you one thing about ravens. They obey their creator. They do what they're told. So did Elijah. The Bible says, So he did what the Lord had told him. He found a brook in a ravine. He hid out for two years. And he ate roadkill. And drank water from a brook. Because that's what God told him to do. Gandhi had this ashram. And this young man who had just received a PhD in economics from London University School of Economics. Comes to stay there. And what he didn't know is that everybody at the ashram was given a job. And Gandhi gave him the job of cleaning the toilets. And he came to complain. And he told him of his uh, education. He says, I hold a doctorate. I'm capable of doing great things. Why do you waste my time and my talent cleaning toilets? And they say Gandhi replied, I know of your capacity to do great things. But I have yet to discover your capacity to do little things. And that's what God has got to know before you can go to Carmel. Because nobody is ready for battle. Until they learn how to take orders. And so that was assignment number one. To learn that obedience isn't complicated. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Assignment number two. To grow confidence in the provider instead of the provision. Because God is always trying to move us from self-sufficiency to God-sufficiency. And that is why God ordered the ravens, just bring him one meal at a time. And when he ate that meal, there was no more food unless the ravens showed up again. They didn't bring him food for a week or for a month or even for a couple of days. They brought him one meal at a time. And Elijah never asked, what if they don't come tomorrow? Because he knew it wasn't food and water keeping him alive. It was God. See, before you can trust God to do something dramatic in your life, God wants to figure out, can you just trust Him daily? Jesus taught us to pray this prayer. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. Here's a blessing and a tragedy for most of us in this room. We've never prayed that prayer literally. 
We pray it metaphorically. And it's a blessing. We live in a place where we have the assurance of food to eat tomorrow. But it's also a tragedy because it hinders our ability to depend totally on God. God has given me the the blessing to preach in parts of the world where people pray the Lord's Prayer and they don't pray metaphorically. They literally pray, give us today some bread. Because if we don't get some bread today, we don't eat. What would your faith look like if that's what your prayer life included? Our problem is that we tend to confuse niceties with necessities. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. In other words, Paul says, If you have one meal and you've got one shirt, then you don't have one complaint. There's a lot of people that would like to trade places with you. Some of you that are older will immediately recognize this picture. Charles Lindbergh. First person to ever fly across the Atlantic, 1927. I think he was roommates with John Jones in college. A reporter was asking him before he took off for Paris what he was taking with him in terms of supplies. He said, I got a jug of water and five sandwiches. And he was asked, why aren't you taking more than that? And his answer was brilliant. He said, well, if I make it to Paris, that's all I'll need. And if I don't make it to Paris... That's all I'll need. (laughs) And what God is teaching Elijah by that brook is I'm going to give you all you need to do everything I'm going to ask you to do with your life. You trust the provider. Not the provision. Now God has given many of us a great amount of provision. Most of us have pantries in our houses. And the pantries are full. And some of us even have freezers in the garage. Because we can't get it all in the pantry. Be thankful for that. But don't put your confidence in your ability to order your future. Put it in God. I'm not saying it's wrong to plan ahead. I'm saying it's wrong to worry ahead. Because God has plenty of ravens. Assignment number three. To show dependence on God in dry seasons. Because sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. You see, the drought affected Elijah just like it did everyone else. And a drying brook can be a harder thing to deal with than a prophet of Baal. 
We like to sing this song, you give and you take away, you give and you take away. Well, it's easy to sing when the brook is flowing. But what do you sing when the brook starts drying up? You see, I think one of the greatest things you have to learn in the wilderness is that in every life there's dry season. And some of you are there right now. Your brook's drying up. Maybe that means your financial situation is a whole lot tighter today than it was two years ago. Or maybe that means your health situation is a whole lot more desperate today than it was two years ago. Or maybe it means your marriage is a lot more stagnant than it was before the drought. You're still waiting for your kids to come back. You're still waiting for God to seem real again. Now here's the thing. When that brook starts to dry up, are you going to let the drying of the brook affect how you look at God? Or are you going to allow your view of God to affect how you handle the brook? See, here's the thing. The, the drying brook was a direct result of Elijah's prayers, remember? Elijah was the one praying, Lord, don't let it rain. Well, guess what? His brook dried up too. You ever thought that some of the trial and some of the dryness in your life is a direct result of God answering your prayer? You prayed, Lord, give me more patience. So He gave you a trial. Lord, help me love more. So he put a difficult person right in the middle of your life. Teach me to trust you more, Lord. So he had your company downsize. And then we complain and we get mad at God for dry seasons when our prayers are part of the reason they're there. God's trying to teach you to depend on him. And it's important to notice Elijah did not complain and he did not leave. He waited on a word from the Lord. Because when your brook dries up, God is still large and in charge. And if you are exactly where God told you to be, and you're in a dry season, then be patient because God is about to do a new thing. The psalmist says, chapter 27, you wait for the Lord. You be strong and you take heart and wait for the Lord. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. You see, camp determines whether or not we are really under orders. Do you really believe God? 
or do you just believe in Him? Bob Pierce is the founder of World Vision. And he said he started praying a prayer as a young man that changed his life. And God has used his life to change many in the world. And here's the prayer he played, and I recommend it. Oh, Lord, I give you the right to change my agenda anytime you want. And you do not have to inform me in advance. Maybe tonight when you go home, you can spend a few minutes with the Lord. And talk about some area of your life where more obedience is needed. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. When he yearns with all his heart to create. So great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch God's methods. Watch His ways. How He ruthlessly perfects whom He royally elects. How He hammers and hurts Him. And with mighty blows converts Him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How God bends but never breaks. When his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses. And with every purpose fuses him. With every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. And when that's okay with you, then you're ready to break camp. God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow night.